The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land that I swore to give your forefathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? Now for, therefore, I tell you that I will not drive them out before you. They will be thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. When the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to all the Israelites, the people wept aloud, and they called that place Bochim. There they offered sacrifices to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. As uh, Pastor Giorgio said, we're going to begin our, a sermon series in the book of Judges um, today. And um, just as you can tell, we didn't. Uh, the scripture reading comes from chapter 2, and we're going to talk a little bit about what goes on in chapter 1. Let me encourage you throughout this series. I need to put this down. Um, let, me, let me encourage you that throughout this series um, that you would read at home, that you would read through this book as we're preaching through it, um, that uh, you would uh, bring your Bibles, if you have them, to church. If not, we're going to have some provided. Um, we typically have the Scripture in there, but when we do these Old Testament narratives, Sometimes it gets a little long, and we didn't want to read the whole chapter one to you today, but I recommend you go back and read um, this definitely um, as we go through it. Now, 1,500 years um, before the events of the book of Judges begins to unfold, the Creator God uh, came to to an unimportant man by the name of Abraham, and he promises Abraham that for the glory of God, he will use him as a vessel of extreme heavenly blessing. Uh, one, a blessing filled with earthly real results. He would have a lot of descendants. He would get a nice piece of land that would be the settlement for these people. It was a trust, if you will, a trust fund from heaven for his, his descendants. And most importantly, they would get a God that would not leave them. That, that would, that, that, that God would be their daddy. So that through them he would be known for who he was to everyone else around them. That he would be known through the Israelites to everybody else as the world's Lord and Savior. It was a deal of prosperity, a trust, a promise to Abraham and his descendants. Now, after 1,500 years of God's fathering of Israel, complete with wandering the desert and being in in, in, in slavery, uh, with what I would describe as spankings and groundings when they did wrong, and even the unexpected gifts and graces that only Daddy could give, these people, the descendants of Abraham, had finally come into the Promised Land which is a kind of thin strip of land along the coast of the, the eastern Mediterranean. And, and Egypt is to the south, and, and on the eastern border is uh, the Jordan River. So this little strip of fertile land was their promised land. But big problem. Yes, Moses and Joshua and all those Bible characters heard from God that God had brought them to this place. But no one bothered to tell the people already living there that. 
a mixed group of dispersed people, once great kingdoms. Now these little city-states run by different warlords or kings. They were the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites and the Perizzites, with the Canaanites being the largest group of them all. So you know what's coming. What, when you read, will appear to be a, a fight. A takeover, a jihad, an ethnic cleansing, a a gentrification, an an imperialistic takeover of one of the most fertile lands around. You know, it had the oil of the day. It had good croplands and grazing lands and water. And with no navies at the time, it was good and secure. It was in the national Hebraic interest to take over. It all reads like they had to rid the land of terrorists by terrorizing. Just sort of comes off that way. At first reading chapter one, it looks like the first crusades war to take the promised land. It was complete with bloody annihilation of men and women and children who wouldn't move out. Anyway, they did it. Israel felt they were called to do what they did. All to have, to inherit, if you will, the trust. The trust that was promised to them by their heavenly daddy to their great-great-grandfather Abraham. As a matter of fact, God is rebuking them in the scripture you have before us for not taking the land completely. Either they let some of the people stay in some, let's call it, government-regulated housing, or in some cases, they use the people there to be the working class for their newfound prosperity. And God didn't like it when they used these people as a labor force instead of pushing them off the land. Or when the people of the land just look too big, they look too mean. It's like my daddy used to say, when there's a wasp's nest or a hornet's nest, and you're kind of a little curious, he would say, son, just leave them alone. And so that's what they did. Many of God's people, to God's dismay, they just left them alone. They allowed people to live where they could. And some went for the liberal new urban approach. You know, they went for a nice mix, eclectic community. Canaanites, Hittites, Jebusites, and Israelites together, hooray. But that was a no-no too. Now, chapter 1 at the beginning, we see Judah, the big brother tribe. Uh, Israel was split up into 12 tribes, Judah being the first. It was the most successful, going uh, first among the tribes of war, and they pushed out almost everyone. But every other tribe failed to get a passing grade from God on their handling of taking the land. You see, whenever Israel refused to completely rid the land of those there in this case, in the eyes of God, they failed to gain or show their trust completely. Okay, what's going on here? When you read chapter one, I had a hard time, too. I had to call a lot of folk (laughs) because I thought God was a God of love. Or or maybe he's one of those dads who who forces his kids to do wrong when they know it. Something can't be right. Or or maybe Israel read the directions wrong. They were fighting and killing for what they thought were weapons of mass destruction. But the Hebrews are wrong in their interpretation of the intelligence they were given by God somewhere, somehow they had it wrong. 
This is how I figured to deal with the controversies and that rise up in us with this God-sanctioned land cleansing. Now, after much, again, calls, and I emailed, uh, talked to Pastor Giorgio, and I talked to David Speakman, who's a who's fellow seminary grad who's dealt with this book already, preaching it at RUF, uh, we, we can grasp, this is what I figured, we can only grasp what God is doing and what is going on, on only after we have the full picture and the full story. I mean, wait, I mean, we can cast judgment on the God of the Bible's character and purpose only after we hear the whole thing, the story of this book. In fact, I would, I would believe that this book is designed to not only answer, but calls us to face and to be changed by and be challenged by, be engaged by those hard questions of what God is doing over the long term. Which means we can't and shouldn't answer in some sort of theologically wordy explanation by some, you know, seminary grad. And, and let me, let me tell you what's going on in two sentences and that, that's part of the problem. And, and let me let you know, I'm not a politician who feels like he's been caught without proof of why Israel's in war. No, yeah, I realize that as a pastor, preacher, teacher, it's, that it, to some degree, I'm a storyteller with a particular audience. And that we have to hear the whole story. Bible history is designed to lead us, to lead our hearts, our lives on a journey into the mess, into what can't be explained just by looking at it on the outside. It's a journey that I think will explain the nature of the trust, that it was an entrusting of God's blessing, that they, the Israelites, were, were called to be God's chosen people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a very reflection of the glory and honor and love and mercy of God. And in that, they were used, yes, used by God as an instrument that would convict an unknowing world of Canaanites and others about a God that was tired of seeing them waste their lives away worshiping gods that did not exist. Some of them were killing their children in the fires to appease some non-existent God. He wanted these people to be freed, to be awakened, yes, sometimes in very harsh and bloody ways, to what they were doing. It was in part a stopping of the Husseins and Hitlers and Koreshans and Jim Jones and, and genocidal maniacs of the day and their armies. And God's people, the Israelites, were used as an imperfect instrument of correction and grace by a perfect God to stop the foolishness, to stop the mess, to put a stop to what was already killing and demeaning uh, Canaanite women and children and themselves. But more than that, Israel in the promised place and getting the trust would be openly chastised by God for their own mistakes. And so God was like, you know, my mama used to do. Sometimes you'd openly get disciplined. And she would be like, you know, you're not going to embarrass me. You my son. You know, and this is what God would do. He, when we look at the book of Judges, he's going to openly discipline the other nations, going to get one up on Israel so that the people would know that if God's people were out of line or, or not in accord to his grace and mercy of the promise, that they would be disciplined. Now, what this did is this. It made God alone 
holy and righteous. And somehow in the blur of the bloody details, the story of the gospel is told. God emerges as the hero in the book of Judges. Above any sort of ethnic propriety or self-righteous justified killing, leaving us, we, we should leave us not in a moral debate about, about whether war is justified, but hopefully seeing what? That we are sinners in a sinful world and that God has come to be our judge and redeemer and daddy of sinners in a sinful place. I urge you to let this book kind of show us the gospel in a messy world. But it all begins with the trust. Our trust of a God who, like we may feel today, is hard to understand. Dare I say it from a human standpoint? It's hard to trust God sometimes. We want to turn away. Sometimes I want to run away. We want to make concessions and repaint God or even find a new God who isn't so pushy and persistent or so holy or so good. And so slowly putting this puzzle together, let's start with trust. Let's kind of stick the swab right into the womb like these first two chapters do and ask this question. In the background of all this stuff that in, in Judges, do you trust God? Look at your world. Do you trust him? This God that asks us to do the impossible? To sometimes do what goes against what we naturally don't want or feel like doing? Do you believe in him? Do you believe in his promises? Do you believe that he is speaking truth to us through the scripture? Truth that can be acted on and lived on and loved on. Do we trust God? Do we do what he says without reservation, without fear and what we believe? He may have wrong right now. God, you just don't see it. Look at these people. How can you ever ask your people to take the lives of other people? Lord, I can't trust you. You're wrong right now. Chapter 1 asks and reveals where our, where your, where my trust of God is. Now, we, we learn in these beginning chapters of Judges that the trust of God or, or, or where we can see whether we trust God or not, it's in the story of our lives. It's in our handling of the world around it. It's, it's how we and you handle and treat the world around us and around you. And here's what we can learn in the first chapter of Judges. Israel was not to ignore the nations around them. To just let them be the way they were. They were called to engage them according to God's orders to them. In this case, to declare war on them. To put an end to their self-tyranny, their national tyranny on each other. To let them know that there was a God in front of and behind the Israelites that cared about how the folk in Canaan lived even if it was an ignorance or disgust of him. Here with chapter 1, verses 17 through 19 says, and you don't have this before you, but if you have your Bible, you can open up chapter 1, verse 17. It says, Then the men of Judah, remember the first tribe that went in, went with the Simeonites, their brothers, and attacked the Canaanites living in Zephah. And, and they totally destroyed 
the city. Therefore, it was called Hormah. The men of Judah also took Gaza and Ashkelon and Ekron, each city with its territory. The men was with the, the, the Lord, sorry, was with the men of Judah. They took the possession of the hill country. And I'm going to stop right there. Simply put, and I'm not going to linger here too long. They were called to engage the world and its problems with God provided provoking. God was with them. He wanted to provoke the world, a, a messing with them that would have their eyes look up and be concerned maybe for the first time in their lives with the God that had created them, doing what it took to have them face God with their lives. I believe God is calling his people to mess with and in the world's people and systems, and thinking, and structures, and not build a world parallel or or besides them, or in a way that said, God ignores you. He only sees us, or, or he doesn't see you or care for you. He doesn't care how you live here. He doesn't, he doesn't care about this detail or these people. No, they were called to Horam, a harim, a complete engagement of everything to leave, to not leave anything untouched, not the men, not the women, not the children, not the animals, not their wealth, not their false gods. The full life of the community was to be addressed and faced towards a holy God for them. At this time, not always, it meant facing God through death. Israel actions understand simply face them toward God's judgment. The Bible makes clear in Judah's action that he, God, was with them. The Israelites were not their judges. I want you to hear this. They weren't their judges. They were basically used by God to police police them into God's court to make an account for their lives. Lives that God cared to take notice of that mattered how they lived. I'm not going to say let's take up arms. That's not what I'm getting at. Don't, don't be scared. I don't believe in some sort of God is calling us today right now to in some type of commune, commune declare war, sort of take over stuff. You know, America, the godly country, we take it over and all that kind of stuff. But I do believe in Horam, complete infection of this world and this community and your neighbors and your family and your histories and your workplace and friends with what God is doing. Now, at Christ Central Church, we talk about uh, being viral, kind of being this living, very infectious part of the city, but like judges in a way that totally affects the body of things, the whole city. It's poverty, it's racism, it's, 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 it's prejudice, a, a takeover that, yes, may make people face a fear for God who doesn't like what they are doing, who is disappointed in their alienation of them from him and their wrong treatment of those around them, and even the wrong condemning view of themselves. God told Abraham that his people, that the trust would be about blessing the world, which meant engaging the world in the way where they would have to face a God that saw them. Which means believers, surprisingly, are to engage the world. 
no more hiding in the Christian world. I've talked about this building, this parallel godly reality complete with the Christian gym and the Christian nightclub with all the Christians being employed by the church and by the church people and all the little Christian companies. And we do that, we fail like many of the tribes did because believers are too afraid that they will not be liked, that they won't have sufficient answers for what they will encounter or the death wish in postmodern culture, that we will come across as arrogant know-it-alls and imperialistic and we will get into how to avoid that in future lessons and judges but in mercy cases i think about it you know we have all these issues and poverty in our city and the one thing i think is we don't have enough there aren't enough funds can't we just be a church that doesn't care about poor people that'd be great i look like the israelites did in chapter in verse 19 in chapter 1 they come out to war and the Lord says engage the land and they see these iron chariots and when they see these iron chariots you're like no way we can't take this and sometimes I look at the poverty of our city and our community and I look at our budget and I say okay let's not go there or I look at another culture in the city or some people who are different than me and I say no way it's too scary. It's too socially big. Judges is calling us to go out there. Don't be in Bible study every night. Engage this world with a, with a all and wherever God has called you to. And it may mean that as the encounter goes, that they will be faced with a conviction. And I know it's hard when you think about families and friends and when you talk about God. No, it just turns into a big mess. And let me let you know, I'm not trying to give you a method here, a method of evangelism. We're just going to go out with our tracks. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a heart that says God actually cares about the world around us. Some of the tribes were real slick. In chapter 1, they enslaved the people instead of getting rid of them. And they were called on the carpet for that too. You see, we say we don't trust God when we want the community to work like slaves for us. You know, we want kind of to be the cool urban community. We want the friend that you can just be your fun self around who won't make you feel stuffy. You want to keep the money train coming at your job so you turn your head to unfair, unjust practices. I mean, come on. Everybody knows Christendom, how, how we pimp capitalism as some sort of, as some sort of God American right thing to keep ourselves from dealing with our greed. We don't want to engage things in this world. We rather enslave them for our own good. You know, sometimes I don't want people to know I'm a pastor. I just want the good conversations to continue. You know, I actually believe it's in some sort of accountability for the way you're living. But my temporary fun with you sometimes is so much more important. I just... I just want to use you to have a good time. And that's what God is saying to his people. You're just using people around you to have a good time. You're not really caring for them. You just want them for your good. And I, I no, not just me, all of us so-called believers would rather enslave our community by hiding our God from them to carry out our own self-centered purposes. It is true. Sometimes we trust our feelings over God's for the world. And I am not, again, I'm not talking about method here. We need some wisdom, but I am talking about what our hearts are like. And we're using the world and world systems like slaves instead of engaging and freeing them to meet God with God's mercy and justice. Here's the deal. 
we're afraid. And so Christendom, Christianity, church stuff, all church people, form this separation kingdom because we don't trust God. And there, this is the trust that the tribes fail to have because like us, they feel a strain. We feel when we know that we are not good enough to face the world. We don't trust what God gave to Abraham and that he, God, will face. What you have to realize is God is going to face the world for you. That he wants to face the world. He wants to let the community, your friends, your family, maybe you, face him through his people being there. But not only is the trust of God revealed in how we deal with our community, but it's also in how we deal with our closets, if you will. See, part of the reality of living in the promised land was, was living holy. Not only with H holy, but W holy. That there would be no pockets of undealt with sin in the lives of God's covenant community. Let, let me tell you that to let the other nations stay was to, as we'll discover later in this book, to let pagan social and religious practices stay in communal life. And that would be translated in the church's life in today's terms. Like up, like up in here of God's called holy people. Now, a number of tribes in chapter 1 allowed the practices that went with the people to stay among them in the closets of the country. So you have these verses in chapter 1, these situations in chapter 1 where they'd say, okay, Israelites moved in the land, they just let these people live over here. Or the Israelites lived in the land, they got the hills, the Israelites got the plains. And so you have this kind of, and then in some situations they would say, all right, the people just lived among us. We just have this great eclectic community. Now, in this case, in the wrong way, but this great eclectic community. And so you had this sort of mixing and, 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 and one over here living next to each other and, and that sort of thing and all the things that we think are great today. But in this situation, it was like having pagan worship on Sunday morning. It was like having pagan practices as a part of what we do as a church of God. And so God was like, we, we just can't have it. Hidden away, not mixing in obvious everyday living, but with these unseen borders. We, we talk a lot about authentic community here. Well, we have this term, authentic worship. And it does not and is not happening when there are closets Cut off places of undealt with issues between us and God and us and each other. And we just leave them alone, right? Why do we leave stuff alone? When there's obvious issues between me and you or, or you and somebody else or, or between God and this church or God and this community or God and you, we leave them alone because what? They're too messy. It will be too bloody to bring into light. Or it's like those iron chariots the Israelite tribe saw. We look at our issues individually and corporately and we say, let's just leave it alone. They are too big. It's too sinful. It's too impossible to get rid of for every person sitting here. Whether you call yourself a Christian or not, there is at least one closet in your personal life that you have not allowed God through his community, his corporate judgment to come to heal you in, to 
help you, to rid you of. And, and, and it's too shameful. I, it's too powerful. It may be too historically grounded. And if you just have one closet in your life, you got another one. It's called deceit. Because trust me, we have more than one closet. We got a whole bunch of stuff. And, and the mess of relationships of hidden, unrevealed feelings that need to be committed to God, brought before God, brought before the session and to that person's attention. We want the community others, what God may have said about it, to stay over there. We don't want it because we believe it is a useless waste of time. Which means you believe that your problems and your issues are a useless waste of time. We don't and we can't trust God. Look, I'm with you. I'm your pastor and I have and have had closets and closets and closets. And I know how it feels. I will be shamed. I will be discouraged by the persistence of this thing. I have struggled for years. They can't change. I am too messy. It will make our church messy. My stuff stinks too badly. God doesn't want to help me in this or with that. And we let things connected with people and their lives and their relationship destructive to God and community go untouched. We simply just kind of live in them and you with them. And that's why I love series for this reason. The stories of this book will deal with this more, but this chapter one summary of what 300, 350 years will look like for the Israelites gives us this indictment. The way we live and leave our world and lives untouched by God in sometimes small, highly detailed ways says exactly what the angel of the Lord declares in chapter two. We don't trust God. Enough. And if the trust is not us in us, where is the trust? Where is the hope that we should live as God calls us to himself in this world, to this world of broken and scary lives? Where is the trust? How can we even begin to trust God? He, he calls us to, to nakedness and to be revealed and even to be cut off and shamed by people around us. I mean, some of you, you go home at Christmas and it's like some of you believers go like, man, here comes the freak right here. Here he is, the family crazy idiot. He's going to that crazy church in the theater. Can't trust that. I don't always want to trust that. Sometimes, some weeks, Pastor Georgia, you know, you get the emails, you get the calls. Like, God, can we just sing on Sunday morning and have a good time? Can we just sing Kumbaya and roast s'mores on the fire? Do we have to talk about the sin? Do we have to talk about Jesus and redemption and sin and do the confessions and all this? I mean, it's just, it's hard. Read with me chapter 2, verse 1 through 5, and you brochure bulletin one more time. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to book him, and he said, I brought you out from Egypt and led you into the land that I swore to give your forefathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? Now, therefore, I will tell you that I will not drive them out before you. There will be thorns in your sides and their gods will be a snare to you. 
When the angel of the Lord has spoken these things to all the Israelites, the people wept aloud and they called the place Bochim. There they offered sacrifices to the Lord. Now, these are pretty heavy words. God is fussing at his people. Um, for what? Not trusting in his promise that he made to Abraham. The tables have turned. God is having them face him now, bringing them into the light, confronting them of their mistreatment of their community and world around them, of their distrust of God that led them to hide their sin and enemies to the relationship with God and each other. And more than that, an all out kind of spanking. He says, I'm going to put, make them snares and thorns and they will hurt you. God will use the nations. They didn't push out as his whip, his stick, his paddle on their backsides, just like he was using Israel with them to kind of push them away from what they like, but should not back to himself. You know, so Clark, uh, my, my youngest son, all I have to do is kind of turn like I'm going to get the spanking element tool or whatever it is. Uh, or or, or he, it, it, all it has to be is a look in my eyes that says, you're going to go to timeout. And what's Clark say? Immediately, like, <laughs> like he has this candy thing. I'll just be walking and he'll have a bag of candy eating it. I don't know how he gets to it in a chair or something. And so I'm like, Clark, what are you doing? And immediately when he looks into my eyes, he says, I don't want it. <laughs> Sometimes I don't like it. You know, <laughs> with a mouthful of candy, I don't want it. I don't like it. Then, you know, this is what God is doing to his people here. He is confronting them with a fearful angel of the Lord with, with okay, you got hurt a little bit. Here comes the spanking. And the Bible says the people wept and they sacrificed. And with mouths full of candy said, Lord, we don't like the way we are. We repent. We don't want it. Oh boy, we, we really do. But Lord, now that you've come and you reveal this, we think we don't want it. You know, we, we don't like it. Let me tell you, this is not a good time in scripture for them and for those of us who do the same things. But it is good news. Because regardless of why God has come to them in this theophany, which is an Old Testament manifestation of God on earth, in the angel of the Lord, it says this, God is with us. That he takes his people seriously. That he cares and sees and notices how we live and what we do. God can at the very least be trusted because he's committed to be with us. Stay with us. And in this case, he will get with us and on us. But good news. Because this angel of the Lord is God's battle leader. Okay, it was like when you looked at the angel of the Lord, you were like, okay, he came to kick some butt. You know, he, 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 this angel ain't playing. He came to fight. And it meant that they had a leader, someone scarier, somebody bigger, more awesome than what's in the chains or in the closets or in the land. That one coming to convict them of the sin is the same one that has come to deliver and lead them to the trust. The angel of the Lord is, yes, a fearful judgment thing, but more than just that, it meant... They had someone who could save them from all that was troubling them that they couldn't save themselves from. In a guest room next to where we slept when we were boys, me, Terrence, and Joel. Yeah, one room, because my parents, they had their guest room. 
They were gonna split up because one room, y'all gonna mess up one room, so we all lived in one room. And sometimes daddy would be at symphony or the opera practice or something like that, and he'd be coming in late. And um, let me tell you, there's a sound of that door. You know what sound I'm talking about? When that door moved, you can hear all them belts wrangling on the back of the door. And when you heard that sound, either you were in trouble. I mean, it's just, it, he had them 1970s belts, you know, with the three buckle loops, you know, the three loops going all the way down, some white, some brown. I mean, it, the 70s, y'all. So, and, and when you when you would do wrong, and you knew you were going to get a spanking, you hear that door, chink, 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 and you can hear it coming off the the door. And you'd be like, oh, Lord, I'm going to get it this time. And sometimes the door moves faster, chink, 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 chink. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, he's getting the big white belt. He had this white belt. Again, it had the two loops, you know. Oh, my goodness. I mean, the wind went right through aerodynamic, pow, you know. And so, it, it, but then, you know, I realized that sometimes the sound of that door was the sound of a spanking. But sometimes the sound of that door was the sound of daddy coming home. You just heard it. You know, he'd be getting undressed because he had his clothes in that room. And you hear, cha-ching, ching. You're like, oh. <laughs> Daddy's home. See, the angel of the Lord. Same sound, different things, but one comfort. You can kind of see the belt, the power of consistent discipline of being the thing. The one who's going, the one who does the discipline is the one who's got to beat off the enemies. The one who provides security. The one who can spank your butt, can spank the world's butt and all your issues butts too. The appearance of the angel of the Lord says that is the God. That is who will be the only one who can free us to trust him. He alone is the one who can deal with the community and the closets and things we can't bring ourselves to deal with, things we're obviously incapable of handling. The angel of the Lord appearing is God saying, look at who goes out before you and with you and behind you. I am the Lord, your God, in a broken and hard and morally confusing place. When you see me, the Lord, only then does your heart melt and your sins are dealt with and your world is properly handled and you can know and feel the trust between you and me. It is safe to say that the angel of the Lord was a pointing to, if not a manifestation of the incarnated Jesus Christ of the Old Te- and the Old Testament. And God is saying to us what they should have seen less clearly but surely. I can trust my God because he has sent a Savior who can take away my sins, who can take away my shame, who will take the thorns from me and the snares of evil from me, who can rightly and justly deal with this world. I can trust Jesus' actions when I face my community and me and everybody around him and the world I'm called to engage engage with. If I can trust Jesus to face them, I don't have to be distrustful of how he will handle my friends and my family and my well-being or my job or my community or me because he means judgment, but he also means redemption. The angel of the Lord was Jesus. Declaring that Jesus reveals the danger of our closets. He, he reveals a danger, a failing in our, a failure in our community. And he, Jesus, in no hidden terms, with his bruised and bloody body and naked, shameful death, says, y'all, we have created a mess. 
We got all kind of problems within we hadn't dealt with. I mean, come on, Christianity, I'm always feeling like I gotta make an apology for the way churches have handled stuff. How, why are they building so big? And the community's so poor. Why grandmama sending her last check lights turned off and the deacons ain't been down to see her? What? Jesus' body, bloody body says to his church and to the world, y'all ain't trusted me. Y'all have made a mess of things. But not to condemn us. We miss it if you think what is going here is just about condemnation. It's about rescue. This is a time and chance at repentance. And of repentance and our failure and fear of ourselves and our world and freedom from the thorns and snares within. Without that, we hide in our closets. I mean, it's so hard. I mean, we, come on, my, my family who, a lot of them go to church here, we've had our struggles. And it's been hard to sit down and talk because I'm afraid, man, we're going to fall apart. Hard to deal with sin issues and tell your friend or tell an elder or talk to somebody. I know how hard it is, but this is about rescue. When Jesus is in the middle of it, it is a time of hope in a dark place. When you don't know how to handle your community, when you don't know what to do or what to say or how to address it, or if the poverty is too great or the unbelief is so crazy or, or whatever else is going on, the angel of the Lord is here. Yes, with much conviction, but only with much care and concern and hope. Jesus, the person and power of the gospel, is our trust. Where we can go to find trust and see God's trust and begin to trust by turning to the angel of the Lord Jesus Christ, letting him convict and cleanse and complete us. For as the section of Judges is in and others begin, we must believe this. That it is in Jesus. Where God's redemption is. It is Jesus. God's power. It is Jesus. God's mode of conviction and forgiveness. It is Jesus. God's motivating living word that informs our lives. It is Jesus. That is our trust. Where we can begin to trust. And begin living, trusting, because we can live knowing God's caring for us and rescuing us and offering us repentance from all we've screwed up. Thank you, Lord, for your given trust to us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, it is a hard world. It's difficult dealing with things within and without and our family and our friends and ourselves, the way we struggle believing you. It's difficult believing, Lord, you really care or you can help this world around us. We don't believe you. We don't believe the gospel can do it. So we've turned to some crazy means. Some of us are setting up communes. Some of us are setting up Christian world, Lord. Some of us are saying, forget the gospel altogether. Help us to see the angel of the Lord. Help our eyes to see Jesus. So that we can have repentance and hope and belief and even power.
against those things that cloud our view of you and trust of you. Lord, help us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.